Your secret's out. You love food, but not in a, this tastes great. Or I like trying new restaurants. Oh no. To you, food means so much more. You savor the ritual of watching a seasoned sommelier select the perfect wine pairing with your dinner. You love learning about where your food comes from, and you've probably watched every food documentary on Netflix. Your idea of a dinner well spent is dining with the locals at restaurants that are both a hole in the wall and a hidden gem, which is why as soon as you were mapping out your vision board, Italy snuck her way to the top of your travel wish list. You dream of the day you'll get to try all of the pasta your heart can handle in a little osteria complete with an Italian nonna. When you'll try all of the different seafoods and street foods and finally grab a photo of the painted villages of Cinque Terre for yourself instead of just screenshotting one from Pinterest and learn how to cook authentic Italian foods surrounded by other foodies who won't roll their eyes when you ask the chef another question about how it's made. This doesn't have to be just on your vision board anymore. Grab your bestie, your mom, your partner, and come join me for the trip of a lifetime from September 23rd to October 3rd in 2024 to experience the cuisine and food culture of Northern Italy. Parma, Modena, Cinque Terre, Bra, and the Piedmont wine region are calling your name. And registration is open. Head to theeatingexpedition.com for trip details and to sign up. Welcome to the Weight Inclusive Innovators Podcast. My name's Hannah Turnbull. And I'm Morgan Sinclair. We're two non-diet dietitians, entrepreneurs, and Enneagram 7s here to talk shop about the business side of things. From managing a team of clinicians, to building a cohesive brand, to figuring out how the heck to pay yourself, we get deep down in it, talking about what it actually takes to start, run, and grow your weight-inclusive business, the good and the messy. We know your degree didn't include any business classes at least not any applicable to what you're doing now as an entrepreneur. This is why we're on a mission to bring business education to other weight-inclusive clinicians. Say sayonara to all the hours spent on Google and hello to information that is actually relevant. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Weight Inclusive Innovators podcast. We are here today with another episode about group practice. We're going to be chatting about you're ready to do this thing. Let's talk about hiring, onboarding, leading up to your clinician's first day of seeing clients. But before we dive in, we are going to ask Morgan a question. Hey, Morgan. Hello. Hello. If I were to ask you how much money net after taxes you think is enough to have in a month to where you would live a really satisfying life, what would you say? First number. <laughs> Shit. Um, can I do a year instead of a month? Amazing. Let's hear it. Okay. In a year, I think if I made 110K, I would be able to live a really satisfying life. Before or after taxes? Before. Okay. So what does that come out to? Like 85? Oof. I don't know. You're in Texas and I'm very jealous of your tax rate. Yeah. It's not too shabby. Probably 80. Yeah. Amazing. I think that would work. Why? I mean, don't get me wrong, like more than that would also be really awesome. But I feel like with anywhere between 80 and 110K a year, that would allow me to not feel regret of doing random target trips, not making impulse purchases, mindfully, but impulsively. And I feel like that would be enough for me to be able to pay off my credit cards to get the points I need to travel or be able to book plane tickets and actually just pay for them. I love that. You named like your top three values in that, which totally makes sense. 
I don't love that impulsive spending is up there. Here's where, okay, here's where my impulsive spending, not even impulsive spending. My, this is where my brain's at right now. My car is due for inspection, not inspection. My car is due for service in the next couple weeks. And not only is it due for service, it's due for a big service, 120,000 mile service. And I need four new tires. <laughs> so Oof. I got the tires priced out and it's between a thousand and thirteen hundred dollars. And then I'm expecting the service to just be more than I want to spend. And so I uh, want to make enough money where I don't cringe at that number because I know it's something that my car needs for like longevity purposes. Oof. I'm still cringing at that number. I know. But I think I'm going to. So, okay. So here's the thing. I have been a dedicated. I have a Lexus, which is already an expensive car as is. I take it to the Lexus service center, which I know people are going to roll their eyes at me at. And they're like, Morgan, you should never take your car to get serviced at the place that you like bought the car from. But they have a really nice center, like waiting center that I can get work done. They usually give me a loaner car for free because my insurance covers it. It's just a great, a great place all around. And I don't feel like I'm getting scammed by them. Let me rephrase that because I probably, I, you know, there's, there's, I don't know. I, I worry about people taking advantage of me when it comes to cars, because I just like, it's just not an interest of mine. So I don't know a lot about it. Well, also being a woman in society, correct. Men assume things since it's a male dominated. And my service advisor is a woman, which not to say that she's not scamming me, but I don't know. I feel like there's like an unspoken like underlying tone of like women to women, whatever. Anyway, I've been taking my car to the Lexus service center ever since I got it. I purchased it from my parents. So they also took it there. So they have like the whole history. And so I'm thinking of saying, Hey, I've been a customer here for a very long time. How about we do a six month interest-free payment plan on the tires? Oh, I like that. What's the worst they could say? No. Yes. Um, I love that. I think that's totally reasonable to ask and Thank you. love that you're like pitching something to them. I'm going to try. I'm going to try my best. I'll report back how it, how it goes. Perfect. Anyway, we love it. Bringing it back. 110K. More would be lovely, but I feel like 110K would be a really solid, like comfy spot, comfy spot of travel, life goals, investing, doing the things that I want to do. Your turn. Well, I can go in so many fucking directions with this question. Couldn't but we all? I know. If I think about what's enough, um, I would say for living in my day to day and living a pretty good life, I and this is not including retirement or aggressively putting money into savings, but in my day to day, I think I could live com- well, I do. I live comfortably on five to six thousand dollars net a month. So that probably ends up being around what you had said with the 80,000 net. What's 80,000 divided by 12? 6,600-ish. Yep. Yep. Because my living expenses that are like, you have to pay these or else you're in trouble expenses, like my mortgage, my car payment to my parents, all of that is probably around 2,500. And then... 
so that gives me 3,500 to do fun things with, um, including like groceries and whatnot. So that feels like a good comfy amount to live in my day to day. You ready to dive in? Let's do it. Hannah is back in the hot seat today. And I'm actually really excited about this because in part one, we talked about like, how do you know if you're ready to hire? And I feel like I have like a decent grasp on the types of questions to ask Hannah and kind of the mindset stuff around it, just because like I have hired not a another clinician into a group practice, but I have hired an assistant designer, which was contract. It's a very different situation than what we're going to be talking about today, which is the hiring process, which I feel I have like no idea on. So Hannah really doesn't have any idea of like what questions I'm going to ask because I don't even know what questions I'm going to ask, but we're (laughs) focusing in on this period of time from the moment that you decided like, yes, I'm hiring another person. This is for me. This is what I want to do. If you are questioning whether or not you should hire someone, go back and listen to part one of this little mini series. So we're starting from, you've decided that you want to hire all the things that have to happen up until your first clinician, that first hire has their first day on the job. AKA seeing a client. Okay. Let me just say, this is one of my favorite parts to talk about because I feel very good at it. I've done this process 15 times myself, and I have helped over 30 group practices hire one to five clinicians. So don't do math in public. Somebody else tell me what those numbers are. I've helped people go through it a lot. And I feel like I have the data, the timelines, all that stuff of what works and how long somebody can expect because... The process of that needs to happen between deciding you want to be a group practice to having your first employee start, it could be as drawn out as you want to. And sometimes it is because you really have to have the right people who want to work at your practice, get them in the right seats. And if you don't have that, then that puts a major bottleneck in the process. So let's say you decided, all right, I'm going to not be nourished with Hannah anymore. I'm going to now be nourished Colorado. My experience hiring somebody can you can expect it to take 8 to 12 weeks there's many pieces of this but we want to break it into a few different parts there's posting the job and making it real that you're hiring there's the interview process there's the actual hiring and then there's your onboarding so we're going to dive into all of that morgan do you have before we dive into that any thoughts so far 8 to 12 weeks I can't tell if that is a short period of time or a long period of time in my mind. That's basically a whole quarter that it takes to do that. And so as we're talking through posting the job, interviewing, hiring, and onboarding, I would love to know kind of each of those, how long each of those individual pieces take to fit into that eight to 12 week process. Love it. Let's do it. And as you know, it's not going to be a super straightforward answer. And that's very fun because sometimes it feels very rigid to And almost like, come do exactly what I did to hire your first clinician and do it exactly on this timeline when there's so many factors that could affect it. So people don't fall into that trap, but we'll definitely try to give some timelines so that you have some structure because we all know we benefit from structure, especially if you are a neurodivergent fellow friend. And so the first thing you have to do is post the job and have a job description. It can be as simple as, I'm hiring. Here's our group. We're looking for a dietitian. 
It's going to start part-time, lead to X, email your resume, cover letter, whatever to this email. Like you can keep it so simple and scrappy, but you just have to start and tell people you're hiring. And sometimes it's hard for people to rip off that band-aid of, oh my God, it's kind of like speaking it into existence of this is real. I'm taking this step. And what does it mean? What does it mean for people to know I'm hiring? What does it mean for people to see my business in this way? Like it can bring up a lot of feelings for people. Okay. We're going to pause there because I already have a question about what you said. The description that you're writing, can you slow that down a little bit of like top things you, you really need to include when you're writing a description? Oof. Okay. I'm going to say this a million times, probably how I did it with my first clinician has nowhere near similar to how I do it now. Um, So we've hired 14 or 15 clinicians over the last four years, three people have left. And so from my first clinician in 2019, I pretty much messaged her on Instagram and was like, do you want to work for me? Um, and now we have a whole, like, here's our, here's what Nourish Colorado is about. Here's our values. Here's what we're looking for. This job's going to be a good fit for you. If this, if you're this, it's not a good fit for you. Here's the compensation and benefits and all that stuff you can expect. If you're interested in this job, you can apply on all the platforms we have it posted, or you can email me directly with your cover letter and your resume. You can literally Google nourish Colorado job and probably find an old job posting of mine. Pro tip. Don't reinvent the wheel. (laughs) Go take Hannah's brain and use that as a guidance. Yes. And it's a, it's a balance of not wanting it to be too long, but you want it to look really professional and really capture the people that you want to attract. Cause that's the dark side of, Hey, I'm hiring. Email me your resume. Then you're getting more of a mixed bag and you're also setting an expectation in a way of, or a lack of expectation, right? Yeah. So the places, so you have the description. Now you need to like put it out into the world that you are hiring. The first three places that come to mind for me of like where you would post this job description would be LinkedIn, yep. which yep. I don't know how many dietitians use LinkedIn, but maybe they do. A lot. A lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Facebook groups, if it's like allowed by their group. And then like one recently that I think of is like wind weight inclusive nutrition and dietetics has like a job board as well. Yes. Heather, I need to use that. Um, I'm going to use that for my next round of, of hiring. There's also Glassdoor. There's indeed there's list serves and emails anywhere where you're ideal employee candidate could be hanging out, post it there. If you have a friend who you're like, no, is connected in a certain community and you think there could be clinicians there, ask them to spread it around. Like it doesn't have to be a super official way to hire somebody. I've had a mix of word of mouth and indeed, mostly the thing with indeed is a lot of the time you have to pay for your job posting And that can get very expensive. You can put daily caps on it, but you just want to monitor that and make sure you're getting return on investment. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then do you have them, is there like questions that they fill out whenever they're applying for the job? Or is it literally just them emailing you saying like, Hey, my name's so-and-so I'm interested in working for you. 
So the cool thing with using Glassdoor, Indeed, LinkedIn, you can put screening questions in there to make sure like somebody has their RD license. If you're looking for somebody who's ready to go, someone who has experience in eating disorders, if you're hiring for an eating disorder practice, um, all those kinds of things you can put as part of the application process in Glassdoor and LinkedIn and Indeed. Um, But whenever I'm posting in listservs or things like that, Facebook groups, I have people email me. The biggest things I want to look at is a resume and a cover letter. Okay. Is there anything else that you usually ask of them that will help you determine if they're a good fit or not before you get to like an interview process or extending them an interview? Not typically. You can tell a lot from somebody writing a cover letter. Um, People who don't write cover letters are automatically thrown out in my practice. Like take the time to write something specific. Also people who write very general cover letters are also thrown out. Um, But I've seen people ask for references right up the bat and do like mock case studies, things like that. So just depends on how detailed you want to be in the getting ready for interview process. I know for me, I want to see how somebody interacts and how I feel with them that makes a final decision. So I don't completely write people off. Even if I'm like, hmm, I don't know if they have enough experience or what's going on here, or they're kind of general, I'll still talk to them because that's going to give me the best feel of if they're going to be a good fit in our team dynamic, how a client's going to feel with them. And if I think they'll be a good employee. Do you usually put an end date of like, I'm looking to hire someone by this day. So last day to submit applications is this day. Really good question. I, it has changed every time I hire. So one of the reasons why the eight to 12 weeks works, I think is because it is hiring somebody quarterly. And I think that's a good cadence to hire somebody. If you're wanting to grow a group, I think you can spread it out more. If you're like, you know what, I'm just starting to dabble in this and see what it feels like. And I don't even know how many people I want. Maybe I'm just going to try to hire two people this year. That gives you more leeway to have a job open for longer. So in this last hiring round that we did, we posted the job in end of May. We did interviews in June, and then we started onboarding in July and people will start seeing clients in August. That was primarily driven by what timeline made sense for me in time that I was taking off, the summer being here, wanting to focus on supporting my team and making sure their caseloads are good. So it it can be flexible. Did I answer your question? You did. Okay. So moving into interviewing, there's kind of this like little in-between phase actually of like screening the applicants. So the people who have applied for jobs, I imagine you are not extending interviews to every single person that applies. No, you're going to have a mixture happen. It's either going to be, you have two people apply and you're like, huh, I don't know if I like these people at all. Or you're going to have 40 people apply and you're going to be like, some of these people aren't even dietitians or the clinician type I'm hiring for or a therapist. Like they worked at a bank. What are they applying for? Like very random. And then other times you'll have like a handful of viable candidates and that's the ideal situation. So I always like to say, here's my pep talk. If it's not a hell yes, it's a no. And start thinking about that mindset as you're looking through people's applications. Um, So yes, you will get many different types of people apply. Doesn't mean you should interview them all. If it's your first time hiring and you have five people apply, and even if you think some people might not be of interest, you could interview them anyway, just for the experience and to kind of get your bearings. Because I think the first time you ever interview, if you've never done it before, 
is so vulnerable too. Cause you're like, fuck, I have to be the person who knows what they're doing and have to know what questions to ask. And just having that little extra practice can be not harmful to anybody. Okay. For the people that you just from reading applications that you're like, I am not going to offer them an interview. Do you reach out to them and say, thanks so much for applying. Unfortunately, I'm not going to extend an interview to you. Or do you just kind of ghost them? Good question. I'm a ghoster. I don't think you have an obligation to tell people that you're not going to move forward. I think if you interview somebody and you're not giving them the job, that's where I don't go. So then I will tell people that we're moving forward with another candidate or other options at this time. There's also been times, and the reason for this, there's been times where I've told somebody not right now and hired them later. And having that positive interaction of letting them know. And it's tricky too, because you have to be really mindful about how you let them know. Um, You don't want to be like, you interviewed poorly. And so I'm not hiring you because then that that feedback isn't super helpful or, you know, can open up possibilities for lawsuits or things. Um, So that's why they say like, it's okay to ghost, but I'm more of, I want to give somebody feedback around if I'm going to move forward with them or not, because it's just good energy. Once you've interviewed them before that, not necessary. Yeah. Okay. So you, uh, had this big pool of applicants you've chosen, let's say you have like three to five people that you want to interview. How do you go about setting up interviews? Do you do them virtually? Do you do them in person? I'll start there. Yeah. Good question. I also want to add in, maybe you have one to three applicants as well that are viable, or maybe you have zero and then it's figuring out how to get creative of okay, do I need to look at that this is not the right time of year because it's summer and people aren't looking for jobs? Or is it, I need to do a paid ad and I only did free? Like figuring out why you didn't get the applicants is going to be a good step. So I say that just to normalize, not every time you hire, there's going to be two to five viable people. That's like us sending you positive vibes and hoping that happens for you, but just wanting to be real. What was your question? (laughs) My question is, how do you conduct the interviews? I'll I'll lump some of this. How do you conduct the interviews and how many interviews do you have? Okay. I love a three-part interview process. The first one is a screening interview. So that can be a simple phone call. It could be an email. It could be something where you're asking three questions to the person of like, how did they find this job? What interests them? Here's how it works. Are you interested in moving forward? And just because they're interested in moving forward doesn't mean you have to be, but it's really to get the feel for like, what's going on with them? Why are they drawn to this job? And what's going on at their current job to where they're leaving? Um, I wouldn't exactly ask that question, but sometimes people will offer it up because if people come to you and they're like, I hate my boss, I'm going to light their desk on fire. Then it's like, oh, oof. Okay. I don't know. Um, But if they're like, you know, I feel like, I was looking at your website and I really want to do the work you do. I especially like this piece and I love the idea of outpatient and I want a flexible schedule and X, Y, Z, and they're saying all the right things. Like that's a good sign. So you're assessing if it's going to be a good fit for them and you based on the employee piece. The next interview that we do. So that one's like 15 to 20 minutes. Um, You could also do it over an email, but I prefer to get people on the phone because, again, it's that first rapport part and me hearing them kind of like a discovery call. Like, yeah, to see if you're going to be a good fit with them. 
or they're going to be a good fit for their practice that y'all will work well together. I got that's exactly right. And then there's the clinical interview. So this is like the bread and butter interview. It's usually an hour long. We have set questions. We have about 20 that we go through that are just talking about different strengths and weaknesses as a human. Um, also about clinical work values, health at every size, weight, inclusive care, social justice, orientation, all that stuff. Um, and just making sure someone's really aligned and also imagining how their counseling is going to be with a client and assessing some of those skills. So it's a little bit more of an intensive interview. And then finally, we have third round where if we think somebody's a really good fit, we sit them down, we tell them what the job is going to look like, starts part-time and goes into full. Here's the expected client load after three to six months. Here's the downfalls of working at an outpatient group practice or any private practice, to be honest. Like you're going to have more client turnover in the beginning. Here's the pay. How do you feel about it? Just anything that I can to put everything on the table so there's no surprises and no resentments as much as we can mitigate. That's what I like to use the final call interview for. Sometimes I say I'm actually trying to deter the clinician from working for us because I want to make sure that they really want to be here. With those three interviews, what is the usual time frame? Like, do you try to get those all done within like a week or do you try to get that done within a month? Yeah. In like an ideal world, right? Like you said, everything's different, but in your ideal world of like, if we could hire and onboard someone within eight to 12 weeks, like what does that time frame look like for interviewing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good question. So for me, it's two weeks is ideal. Part of that is because my admin is going to be doing screening interviews right now. It's my clinical team. Our clinical supervisors do the one hour long clinical interview. And then I do the third round interview. So with three different people doing three different interviews, it's easier to do it in a shorter period of time. Um, For folks who are hiring their first or second employee and they are a one person show, then maybe it makes sense to spread it out just a tiny bit, depending on how many people you're interviewing, what your capacity is while you're balancing your full caseload and going from there. Love it. After the interviews, that's when you move into the hiring process of this. I imagine the hiring process is just a lot of like check boxes that you have to be like, did that, did that, did that, did that. What does that process look like? Yes. So actually, I think you're kind of squishing onboarding into the hiring process because hiring is really about getting the offer letter out and seeing if somebody even accepts the job. So there's two different documents. um, And I'll be honest, I've only been using one. We're starting to do employee contracts as well this year, which I don't think is necessarily bad. It's just an extra layer of protection. So offer letter is what goes out to the clinician says, we'd love to have you as part of the team. Here's what we're offering you. Here's what the expectations of the job are all on one page. You have it signed as a group practice owner or the solo clinician, and then they sign it and accept the employment contract will really lay out more of like the nitty gritty of those details of like, you have to maintain this caseload after this amount of time. And here are your rights for employment, PTO, all of this. Here's the benefits you'll get in different time frames. Like just a total consent form for employment. The offer letter's like, yay, here's what you get. And then the employee contract is like, here's all the things. And for a long time, I accidentally combined the two, which again, you start where you are, you can be scrappy. It's not the worst thing in the world, but 
as we become more legit, that's what we're doing now. Do you send those at the same time or do you do offer letter first and then the contract? Offer letter first. I have a hot take with offer letters, employee contracts. Those are both great. I've mentioned this in the podcast before. I don't do non-competes. I don't think they're helpful. I think they can be a little bit hostile and people don't have to abide to them. So that's my hot take. It's okay if you've sent them out. I'm not judging you, but I just want to let you know that you don't have to do that and you will still retain people. So after they accept the offer letter, we celebrate. Yay. And then we have a whole onboarding process at my practice that we do. And that's all the, all the, all the things, (laughs) all the things we've actually been tidying ours up more lately and it's looking real good. But for a while we were just being like, oh yeah, this needs to be done. Oh yeah, this needs to be done. So you might have a little bit of that for your first few employees, especially your first one. You're going to learn so much through your first employee and having somebody who can tolerate that. And sometimes I even encourage people to be candid of like, this is so exciting. Love having you here. I'm learning a lot through you. I want your feedback. Totally. So I imagine there's things that the new hire has to do. And there's also things that you as the practice have to do. So let's start with what you have to do on the back end to set your new hire up for a successful day one of seeing clients. Yes. What are, what are the main themes of things that you're, you're having to do on the back end? Okay. So the first thing that we do is we set up two meetings with our new employee. We have a meeting with me. Um, this won't always be the case, but I am going to get the insurance contracts for them to be able to accept insurance to see clients done immediately because that process can take one to three months. And if we're trying to get them onboarded in six weeks or less, we want to get those contracts in as soon as we can. Uh, that's my role right now as more of an operations slash director is I'm doing the insurance stuff and getting that going. You will also want to set up a meeting. And again, this could be you, future group practice owner, or this could be your supervisor team um, to do the actual onboarding as a clinician. So I look at this as two different things. You're you're onboarding this person as an employee. I'm speaking to a W-2 model. You could apply this to contractors in some way of you're going to have to have some kind of onboarding process, but W-2 is just a little bit more intensive. And then your supervisors or you, if you're wearing the many hats, will do the clinician onboarding. So the kind of things that we have to do is set up payroll. There's payroll systems that do the whole thing for you, like getting the W-9, W-2 set up, direct deposit accounts, all of that. I use Gusto at Nourished. I've used it for three years. I love it. It's a great program, pretty affordable and very little hiccups and good customer service. And so if you're interested in using Gusto, we'll drop my affiliate link in our show notes. Um, You do get $100 and I get a little bit of kickback too, but no pressure. There's also ADP, there's QuickBooks, there's other systems. I just am a stan for Gusto. We get to collect all the relevant information we need from the new employee, like RD license, their NPI, what their birthday is, headshot and bio, all that good stuff. We apply for their insurance contracts. Um, we get them added to our liability insurance. We add them to all of our Google Docs and tables and things that they need to have access to, to be able to be a good employee and also be a great clinician. We get their email set up and their G Suite set up. And then we get all their technology things set up. So if they need a computer, we get them a computer. 
We set up their EHR, all that good behind the scenes stuff. And then whenever they're having their meeting with the supervisors, that's where they'll go through the employee manual, which is kind of an orientation of like, if you need this password, here's where it is, or here's how many client sessions you need to see a week. And they're just reiterating that stuff. And then they're getting into the, here's the, here's how you do a discovery call. Here's some scenarios that could come up. Here's how to use simple practice. Let's go through each of these forms that a client will sign so you can understand and help them fill it out if they have questions. Um, And then there's a lot of role play and training and things like that that comes later for helping the clinician be successful in their first client session. It was a lot of information. I know I had to pause. (laughs) So just to recap, since I was kind of going on a tangent, we have a pre-onboarding list, which is the things that we do behind the scenes on the admin and business side and setting up meetings with the new employee. Then we have the actual onboarding where we have the meeting about insurance contracts and getting that all going. And then we have a meeting about how to actually come on board as a clinician. And then we have a training schedule. We use products like EDRD Pro. We use other trainings, books, things that we've deemed appropriate for someone getting started in outpatient eating disorder counseling. And then we set up supervision and all that good stuff with our supervisor team. And then we decide when the clinician is going to see their first client. And that whole process after the offer letter is signed to seeing their first client, that one's usually closer to four to four to six weeks, depending on everybody's schedules. And that brings us to the ideal eight to 12 weeks of hiring someone. Woo, did the math work out? Because I think you can do it faster. Like I'm imagining if it's a, if there's a startup company who has investors and they can pay people salaries to be onboarding managers and things like that, you could do it a lot faster. But usually group practices start pretty scrappy and you're a one person show doing all the things. So that's where the eight to 12 week timeline comes from as well. So yeah, I think that about covers it. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you tend to see in your experience of helping business owners bring on their first clinician? Is there any like common mistakes or like snafus or hiccups that you've seen that we haven't talked about yet? Good question. I think the biggest bottleneck hiccup is indecisiveness and people holding themselves back. Uh, A lot of that's tied to perfectionism of I have to have the perfect job description or I need to pick the perfect candidate. Um, And it kind of goes back to like good enough, especially for the job description piece. For candidates, I'd say that's the best indecisive decision to take time on. However, again, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. I can imagine that being like the first bottleneck or hiccup because it's the thing that's actually making it feel really real that you're putting it out there. So that makes total sense why that would be like the biggest hiccup. The next one would be someone's capacity. So a lot of folks come to me, they're like, I'm ready to hire my first person. I'm seeing 30 clients a week. And I'm like, holy shit, where's your hours to hire? And so that can cause another bottleneck. And that's where the risk as an entrepreneur and figuring out what's the minimum clients you can see and still take care of yourself through this process to get somebody else onboarded so they can replace the revenue. 
that's very important to be able to tolerate too. And it kind of comes back to when you have to wear many hats and you only have one head, it's very inefficient. We hope you enjoyed this part two of the group practice series. We took you through deciding you want to be a group practice and hire your first employee to leading up to their first client appointment. And hope it was helpful. We're not done here. Next, we're going to cover, if you stay tuned, two more parts in this group practice series. From the clinician seeing clients in the first 90 days to one year of them at your group practice. And then we're going to talk about visionary planning and what you're building. So we're super excited. Hope this is helpful. Let us know what we missed. And we'll answer your questions. Thanks for listening to the Weight Inclusive Innovators podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to our podcast to add us to your queue every week. Please leave us a rating and review and share with a friend to help us reach more weight inclusive business owners who could use support and pep talks. We'll see you next week. Bye.